play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, stand-up comedian Hari Kondabolu. One of the biggest criticisms I get in my act is, how come everything has to be political with you? How come everything has to have a political point? I can't help it. I'm a killjoy who does comedy. Like, this this is how I'm hardwired, right? I'm this annoying in real life, right? Hari has a Netflix comedy special called Warn Your Relatives, He's told jokes on Conan and Jimmy Kimmel Live. He has two comedy albums on the Kill Rockstars label. And at the end of 2017, he released a documentary called The Problem with Apu, arguing that having a white actor voice the stereotypical Indian character Apu on The Simpsons is problematic. And Hurry has a serious sweet tooth. As a kid, he and his brother subsisted on a steady diet of cookies and candy. We went nuts. Like, Halloween was great, but we Halloween was not just... Well, it's amateur hour for oh, you guys. Oh, yeah, that was... We, like, trained all year for it, essentially. <laughs> and there was no one stopping us. <laughs> there was no adults saying, no, do not do this. This is bad. And I chat with award-winning Atlanta chef and cookbook author Asha Gomez about the food that she cooks. It's a mix of Southern Indian food and the food of the American South. I don't like the word fusion, it's the other F word. To me, food is an evolution of these amazing places I've been able to call home, south of India and the south of the U.S. But first, my interview with Hari Kondabolu. Like most funny adults, Hari was a funny kid. And growing up in Queens, he was interested in comedy early on. I was in high school. Uh, I was 17, and I wanted to do stand-up, so I ran for student council with the purpose of getting myself like a comedy night because they wouldn't let me have it. Oh. And so then I won office, and then I had it because I at that point I could like make things happen. And so I great had politician just did it all play, for yourself. Made all these promises. The only thing that worked <laughs> that was the thing I wanted. Um, did you but, at least do Pizza Fridays too? No, but that would have been a good idea. I should have promised it at the bare minimum. That was my fifth grade platform. I did not win. Pizza, pizza, pizza Fridays. I mean, I, I remember I had a good election speech. I don't remember all of it. I remember that I said things during my speech that I ended up keeping in my act as an adult. Really? Yeah, like I that ended up making it onto like Jimmy Kim Alive, which is so funny. The jokes I wrote when I was like. 16 and then there's another thing I wrote at 18 or 19 that made it in it's funny to look at like wow that that was a legitimately good joke but um yeah so uh I did stand up at this comedy night I called it comedy night that's, that's how it's creative <laughs> and it was at your school it was at, at night? the high school like it was probably like at five or something you know which was late you know in high school time what time are you having stovetop right <laughs> stovetop mm-hmm. yeah yeah it went really well I did 45 minutes of stand-up at the end of the show Wow, that's a lot. Uh, yeah, I didn't have 45 minutes of material, but it went 45 minutes. You know, like I don't think it was my best work, but I, I definitely proved that I wasn't afraid to be on stage and I had the adequate amount of shamelessness hmm. to make stand-up work. But Hari didn't consider doing stand-up as a profession. He was way too practical for that. He went to college, got a BA, and then he earned a master's degree in human rights from the London School of Economics. 
I was working as an immigrant rights organizer at an organization that is now called One America. My executive director was Pramila Jayapal, who is now a congresswoman from Seattle and uh, was one of my mentors. I did comedy at night at Laugh Hole, which was a really popular show that was part of the alt comedy scene in the People's Republic of Comedy. And the Comedy Underground was my home club. And I went up every night and... It was a hobby. I planned to go to grad school, and I was an immigrant rights organizer, and I had a completely different career trajectory. And um, there was a festival called the HBO Comedy Festival, which at the time was a big deal. And the booker, a fellow named J.P. Buck, saw my clips online, sent me an email asking me to submit for this festival that I'd only vaguely heard of. And the next thing you know, I have a an audition in San Francisco, and I'd never been to San Francisco. And I had a call back in L.A., and I'd never been to L.A., and all of a sudden, I get into this festival, and I get asked to perform on Jimmy Kimmel Live. And all this is happening while I still have a job. And I took a day off to be on TV, flew back the next day, went from SeaTac to my office in the International District, pretended nothing happened. <laughs> but it's hard when people see you on TV. They, they know something happened. They know something has like, happened, Oh, yeah. you weren't sick yesterday. You called in sick, but you were on TV. It was kind of like a remarkable time. It certainly wasn't the plan. But, yeah, I, I owe a lot to Seattle. So if that hadn't happened, yeah. would you have just continued working or would you have gone the starving artist route and no, tried to do comedy? I don't. I mean, I think I'm too practical for it. I yeah. think I probably would have continued in the highly lucrative profession of immigrant rights organizing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it was inevitable. I have a tough time imagining that. I feel like if I hadn't gotten those breaks and that confidence, like there's a reason I didn't really start in New York where I grew up. I feel like New York very quickly breaks your spirit with stand-up, and I don't think my skin was thick enough. And so whenever I was having a rough time in New York, and I still do this, I fly back to Seattle to write new material and feel funny again. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about food. Yay! Yay! So you travel a lot, and you have fallen in love with the Biscoff cookie, which often oh comes God. on the airplanes. You say that you have tried to get free cookies from the company? Oh, I'm shameless about it. Yeah, I mean, I love Biscoff cookies. I didn't know they were, like, legit cookies. I thought they were just airline cookies. But I fly so often, I end up eating so many of those a year. And it's been 10 years of touring eating these cookies. And I remember there was a stretch where I wasn't touring for a couple of months, and I was kind of hankering for them. And I wanted them, so I ended up, like, contacting Lotus slash Biscoff via Twitter saying that oh. I'm addicted to these cookies and I like them. And I guess nobody really hits Biscoff up for cookies, you know? So they said, yeah, sure, we'll send you something. And so I get a, a package in the mail. It wasn't of their cookies. It was of their, like, speculo spread. That's what I was going to ask if yeah. you knew about that cookie butter that they have, because I've yeah. seen that in the store. Twelve glass bottles of this stuff, which was okay. It wasn't great. Not the texture you sought. No, it wasn't the texture or the item I sought. So instead of like just dealing with it, I shamelessly wrote them back. This is not what I asked for. <laughs> oh I asked for the cookies, and wow. then they sent me a bunch of boxes of those cookies, which you know I eventually did get sick of. Okay, so once you had the spread and the cookies, did yeah. you ever make your own sandwich I cookie? I did. It didn't taste as great as I thought it would. Mm. It's There's something about like... It's too much Biscoff. Well, right, because the cream, it's made of the cookie. Yeah. So it's just <laughs> cookie inside. It was just, it was too much. And Speculose is also a bad name for anything sweet. Like it, it makes me sounds... think of um, a medical... Yes, Tool. Yes. Like maybe something when you're in the stirrups, you yes. have the speculose. That's kind of, what. what is that actually That's called? what I'm trying to think of. The spe- What is that thing called? Oh, I wouldn't know. Yeah. This thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You would know more than I would. That's exactly what I think of. I'm like, I think that probably in some way was like, I, I don't know if I want this Mm-mm. spread, ironically enough. No. Um, yeah. 
Biscoff cookie was invented in Belgium in 1932. Now, if you haven't been handed a little two-pack of them on a flight, they are crisp, rectangular cookies. They are buttery and warm with spices and brown sugar. They're crimped around the edges. And right in the middle, it says Lotus, which is the brand of the cookie. They taste kind of like a mix of a ginger snap and a Nilla wafer. And according to a Thrillist article written by my friend, Naomi Tomke, I love when I'm researching around and I'm reading all this food stuff and I'm like, oh, my friend wrote this article. That's fun. Uh, Delta Airlines was the first airline to serve the cookies, officially introducing them to the American palate in 1985. Now, it was kind of a funny coincidence that my friend Naomi wrote this article talking about airline cookies, because every time I go to the airport, I'm like, ooh, who am I going to see? And I'm looking around, and I've never, ever seen anybody. And a few weeks ago when I went to New York, I got on a plane, someone called my name, and it was Naomi. And we were served Biscoff cookies on that flight. I mean, wow, things are really aligning here. So anyway, like Hari said, it is only called Biscoff in America. It's a portmanteau of the words biscuit and coffee. But in Europe, they're called Lotus Speculoos. Europeans got excited about the cookie after it was presented at the 1958 World's Fair in Belgium. But it didn't hit the U.S. until 1985. So Delta starts serving the cookies. People fall completely in love with them. They are the most popular snack by far, even now. And just like Hari, people wanted to eat these cookies all the time not just at 30,000 feet. So Delta starts getting all these calls from people who want to buy the cookies. This is the 80s. This is when long distance phone calls were a thing. People are calling Lotus in Belgium from America saying that they want the cookies. So Lotus starts filling orders. Americans could send a check and their address and Lotus would ship over the cookies until about 10 years ago when they finally started selling Biscoff in grocery stores. And now a handful of airlines serve Biscoff. But my favorite thing that I learned in this article is how some people alter the Biscoff on a plane. It kind of reminds me of the secret menu at In-N-Out or how prisoners make cheesecake out of coffee creamer. But this is a flight attendant secret. So you get your Biscoff cookie, you ask for a lime from the beverage cart, you squeeze the lime on the Biscoff, and people say it tastes just like key lime pie. Hurry's sweet tooth goes way beyond the Biscoff cookie. Since we're getting close to Halloween, I had to ask the Sugar King about his favorite candy bars. Oh, if it's candy, it's Reese's Pieces. Okay. If it's candy bars, it, it's Charleston Chew. Charleston Chew? Charleston Chew. And, and the thing is, Charleston Chew. I didn't know Chew, anybody got that. Charleston Chews are so underrated. What My is God. it? They're like, it's like a taffy, I guess. It's really chewy, obviously. I've choked on them on a number of occasions. Hasn't stopped me. <laughs> Best friend, Justin Chopra, who was my best friend since the fourth grade, uh, one of our first memories as friends was me choking on a Charleston Chew Bar and him punching me in the chest until it knocked out. Could have done the Heimlich. This is like my small world view that I've decided that there are candy bars nobody gets yeah. and then the ones everyone likes. And whenever I see something like Charleston Chew, I'm like, how are they still in business? I know. But it's the people of the U. The people of the U. It's the U people of the world. No, the that, sense is not yeah. working no matter what. It's like people <laughs> like us who keep it going. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is a weird candy bar. It doesn't taste like anything else. Like, a lot of candy bars have elements of each other. Like, Snickers is just, like, Milky Way with caramel and nuts, right? And then It's kind of like Taco Bell. Eat ingredients. They just, like, whirl it around, and it becomes a new chalupa. Yeah. I feel like that's essentially, but Halloween is my 
was my favorite holiday by far. And and every now and then you have the cool houses that give you the big bars of oh yeah candy bars. Like, oh, you want to be heroes. Everyone knows that house. That house is like, there's the house that gives you Mary Janes or pennies, and there's the other side of the house that gives you the full candy bars, not the miniature ones. The quote, unquote, fun size, which is a misnomer. No, it's not that fun. It's not fun. We had a person in our neighborhood that would give out cans of Coke every Halloween, which what? that was the best house. And the worst house was the mini Bibles. That was a thing? Where did you grow up? In the Bay Area. They gave you mini Bibles? Just one house. In the Bay Area? Yes, I know. Which part of the Bay Area? Pleasanton in the East Bay. It wasn't a religious place, but That's yeah, it's just so like a little weird. Jewish girl with a mini Bible and a can of Coke. That's so weird. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Hari shares his last meal. Will it be an entire seven-tier wedding cake? Does he borrow cups of sugar from his neighbors under the illusion that he is baking, but he's actually just going to stick a straw in the cup and slurp up all the sugar? The only way to know his last meal is to come back after the break or to read the title of this episode. (laughs) But just play along, okay? If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. I decided it was time to tell my parents what I wanted for my final wishes, right? (laughs) So I told them, I said, if I'm ever murdered, it's very important that the killer doesn't get the death penalty because I don't believe in state violence. So don't push for the death penalty. I don't want my death to lead to another death, regardless of what this person did to me or to my body. I don't want the killer to get the death penalty. And I remember what my mother said to me. She said, why do you always have to ruin dinner? It's not about dinner, Mom. It's about my final wishes. They should be respected. You're not that famous, hurry. Nobody's gonna kill you, okay? You don't know that. Dad tells people I'm Aziz Ansari. You don't even know. I could be killed by accident. All right, Hari, what would your last meal be? Oh, this is so hard. You know, I know that my friend Lindy West had multiple tears, and I think I might do the same. Okay. 
definitely my, my favorite meal of all time is idli, which is a South Indian rice cake that's usually eaten for breakfast that my mom makes with her peanut chutney, which is it's her recipe. Only my mom makes that recipe. So what is the rice cake like? It's soft. It's bready. It's like warm bread. Because um, there's like the Korean rice cakes that are kind of like noodle discs. And then there's what Americans it. consider rice cakes, which is like that, oh, it's not that you know, dry all. disc. It's very, it's like warm bread. Um, is it rice flour that's made into yes, a kind of bread? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's delicious. But to me, the chutney is what makes it. So that's definitely going to make it into the last meal. Hi. Okay. So I'm just going to interrupt Hari's last meal so we can talk a little bit more about what Eadly is. Because as you heard, I had no idea what it is. So I figure a lot of you also don't have any idea. I was hoping to have Hari's mom come on and explain this to us, but she was unavailable to do an interview. So you are stuck with me and what I learned on the internet. But rest assured, I watched four videos of people making idli. You know, one, one, one video is an amateur, but four? Now that's an expert. So like Hari said, idli is a rice cake. So you start with rice, and I think it's pronounced urad dal, which is kind of like a white lentil. So you soak them both overnight, and then you blend them into this smooth batter that's thick and fluffy. And in the four videos that I watched, uh, it ended up looking kind of like marshmallow fluff. So that batter then sits for six to seven hours because it needs to ferment. And then all of these people on the videos had these really cool metal Eadly molds. So they were like these little indents, like little half spheres. So you would ladle the batter into that. Then that would go into a hot pot of water to get steamed. And so when they popped them out, the little Eadleys, um, they were rounded on the bottom and flat on the top. So it kind of just looked like a baseball cut in half. And they looked really squishy and soft and spongy. And actually, they kind of look like a round Uncrustable, if you need to compare it to a American, quote, classic. Squishy little rice cakes used to sop up chutneys and soups and sauces. I recommend you do a Google image search. That is what I did. Idli is spelled I-D-L-I. And then when the image comes up, you can go, oh, like I did. Like I said earlier, I wasn't able to talk to Hari's mom. So I don't know exactly what goes into her peanut chutney. So this dish will forever remain a mystery to everyone except Hari and his family. And then yeah. the peanut chutney, do yeah. you know what else is in it besides the peanuts? Um, there's some hot peppers. There's, um, God, I used to know this. I'm trying to remember what else is. The fact yeah. that you don't know what's in it, does this mean that your mom kind of holds the key to this recipe? She gave me the recipe at some point, and I attempted to make it, and I made it way too spicy. And, and, and also I realized her recipe is very much like a lot of recipes from home. Like they're not exact. Yes. It's a lot of feel. You, yeah, just you don't measure. Know. You don't measure. Yeah. You taste it, and you know. You know, we've had it so many times, and it's always a little different. As long as, like, it's basically the same, I'm happy. But, like, you know, it always has And if a little... you're not happy, you throw it I off thought, the like, table. What is this? This is why I come home. <laughs> you think I come home to see you, mother? It's to eat this. I'd walk out right now if my laundry was done. Right, exactly. It does entice me to come home more to have that. I mean, I've, I certainly, like, going to India, it's great to have fresh idli, and it's it's served on the street, you know, by vendors and stuff, and... But, you know, nothing, and I think this is kind of a universe, nothing is the same as home cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was your mom the main cook growing up? Only. The only. My dad did, did none of it. Hurry thinks that South Indian food often gets overlooked. Most people are only familiar with food from northern India. 
Yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. So in the United States, when you go to an Indian restaurant, yeah. generally it's the same menu. Yeah. And I think most people don't think about the fact that this is not the entirety of the cuisine in Some the entire country of, of India, right? Well, Chicken tikka masala is not real. Is that it was, not real? That's a British Indian thing. That's a thing that was like concocted for British tastes and has become a staple in Indian food. And I love it, but it's like it's made up. It's not like a... Something that had an organic creation. So this harkens back to the episode I aired a couple months ago with actor Lauren Weedman, where we talked about how most Thai restaurants serve exactly the same dishes. They have the red, green, and yellow curries, the pad thai, the pad siu. You could walk into a Thai restaurant you've never been to before and just recite the menu before even seeing it. And the same thing goes for Indian food in the United States. There aren't any big surprises. You know you're going to see a bunch of different naans. There's the chicken tikka masala, the sag paneer. But India is a big country. And like most countries, even the U.S., food is regional. It is not the same throughout the entire country. So when we come back, award-winning Atlanta, Georgia chef and cookbook author Asha Gomez joins the show. Asha grew up in southern India, but she's lived in the United States for 30 years. And when she goes out for Indian food, she doesn't see any of the dishes she grew up with on the menu. The scent of coconut oil, mustard seeds popping in it, and curry leaves crackling in it. That is the base of most dishes in Kerala. It's what most dishes start with. Also, I really love her voice. More with Asha and me after this break. Hari Kondabolu wants his mom's cooking for his last meal, specifically idli, a common breakfast food in southern India, and his mom's special peanut chutney. So I had done this interview with Hari, and I was brainstorming where I wanted to take this episode, what food I wanted to focus on, and I was invited to the Roots Festival in Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's this really cool roots music and food festival. They invite people from all around the country to come cook and play music. I got to see Mavis Staples perform. So the first night of the festival, there was this big dinner where they had seven chefs from around the country each prepare a course. And after the dinner, I led a Q&A with the chefs. So before this, I had to do a bunch of research and I'm like going through and everybody's really interesting. And then I get to Asha Gomez and I just started reading and reading. And I'm so fascinated with this woman. I was like, okay, you got to stop. You have to move on to somebody else. So at the Q&A, I listened to her speak. She was so passionate that I instantly knew that I wanted to have her on this episode. So Asha moved to the United States from Karla, India 30 years ago. She was chef owner at a couple of celebrated restaurants in Atlanta, Georgia, where she cooked her signature Southern food. South India meets the American South. She earned a James Beard nomination for her cookbook, My Two Souths, and is working on a new book right now. And the food Asha grew up with is so different from what I knew about Indian food. For example, I was under the assumption that Indians don't eat beef. I had always heard that Hindus don't eat beef because cows are sacred animals. But Asha didn't grow up Hindu. So I grew up in the southern tip of India in a state called Kerala. I think New York Times once voted as as the 50 most beautiful places in the world. Religion affiliation in that region is predominantly Christian. I was raised Roman Catholic. I come from a fishing community, so there was tons of seafood in our cuisine. There was no taboos to eating any kind of meat because we were raised Christian, Roman Catholic. So it was 
beef and pork in our cuisine in that region of the world. So it's rather different than what people traditionally tend to think is Indian food. And that, of course, has to do with colonization. Back in the 1500s, I always say before the Brits came and decided to stay for a couple of hundred years, <laughs> uh, the Portuguese came to India and they came as traders and they also came as missionaries. And in those days, India had something called a caste system. So your last name dictated your caste. Your caste generally dictated if you were going to be generationally rich or poor, if you had access to basic things like education. And so the masses that lived around the coastline that I'm from actually ended up converting to Christianity to remove themselves from the caste system, to also have access to education. What happened in the process was they threw us their last names when they baptized us, because your last name is what tied you to the religion. So that entire region is Diaz, Perez, Fernandez, Gomez. Uh, my mom's name is Hazel, my grandma's name was Carmelita. And the Gomez name has been around in that part of the world for a couple hundred years. The cuisine evolved as well because the religion changed. The way we ate changed as well. There's a lot of beef dishes in Kerala cuisine. There's a lot of pork dishes in Kerala cuisine. Like I mentioned earlier, the food Asha serves at her Atlanta restaurant was a cross between Southern Indian food and the food of the American South. So I'm very known for my fried chicken. <laughs> and um, people always automatically assume it's my American South that's, oh, it must be your Southern influence. And it's not. It's my mother's fried chicken recipe that I grew up eating. Um, continents and oceans across. I think every culture has a fried bird. Every culture figured out if you drenched a bird in flour and deep fried it, it was probably going to be good. My mother's fried chicken brine is... Mint, cilantro, green chili, garlic, ginger, blended up in buttermilk. Oh my God. And salt. And the chicken marinates in that overnight before you fry it. So it's pretty delicious. I usually serve it with the low country rice waffle and a spiced maple syrup. So I take maple syrup and I infuse it with uh, coriander, cumin, dried chili flakes. And that's kind of the gist of what my two sats, the cookbook I wrote two years ago is all about is just kind of showing the connectivity between these two amazing places. One of the things Asha is very passionate about is educating people on why things cost what they cost on a menu. Diners don't have a problem paying $25 for a bowl of pasta or for roast chicken. But when it comes to Indian food or Thai food or Ethiopian food, what some people might call ethnic cuisine, Asha says people don't often want to pay more than $9.99 at a lunch buffet. I, as a chef, know who raised my pig. You know, I know my farmer personally. I know what the animal ate. I know if it was humanely killed or not. And I'm bringing you a quality ingredient to the table, just like my fellow American chefs, um, that you're very comfortable paying a premium dollar to sit at their tables. I would hope that you would do the same with my food as well, with ethnic food in general. I think to change that narrative, restauranters and chefs have to take some responsibility as well. We have to change the narrative just as much as people who are, eat our food have to change their perception. And Asha is quick to remind people that she is an American chef. When her cookbook, My Two Souths, was nominated for a James Beard Award, she was thrilled to be placed in the American cooking category. 
even though the book includes dishes like her mom's fish curry. I'm writing my next cookbook right now. It's called Colorful. And, you know, on any given night, the cookbook will take you to Thailand and I'm making a Thai papaya salad or I'm making a bolognese or a rabbit ragu or the south of France, or my mother's southern kitchen or my kitchen here in the American South because it's the way I cook today. I'm curious to see how the book will be received because... I feel that people are comfortable, and I love Nigella Lawson, like people are comfortable asking Nigella, well, how do you make a curry chicken or a butter chicken? But you're not as comfortable asking me as a brown immigrant chef, well, how do you make your bolognese? And I've been making it for 30 years. I go to Rome practically every other year. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. Immigrant chefs who come to this country who have heritages in different parts of the world doesn't mean that that's the only food we know how to cook or that we cook on an everyday basis in our homes, right? I haven't lived in India for 30 years. They may be my roots, but I haven't lived there in 30 years. Yeah, you're an American. I'm an American, yes. Um, And so I hope we can change that narrative. Mm -hmm. So obviously this is a food podcast, so I had reason to talk to Hari about food. And it just so happens that his last meal is an Indian meal that his mom prepares. But one of his biggest pet peeves is when he meets somebody new and the kind of small talk that they choose to engage in is immediately asking him about Indian food. Hey, so I went out to Indian food last week. It's the weirdest thing in the world because immediately it's like, oh, that, that's what I am to you, I suppose. I'm a trigger for a food you like. You know, it's always the most bizarre because, look, I've never met somebody, ask them what their heritage was and then go over cuisine. I think it's always a bad look. To not start a conversation with, hello, how are you? What is your name? Well, what do you say if somebody does start a conversation that way? Because I think a lot of people are trying to connect somehow. It's not a great way to connect, but I think that's where it comes from. It it, it does come from that, but I think it comes from that because people are so awkward about race. You know, how do you connect with anybody? You connect as you're human. You know, if you're a white person, you connect with another white person. Do you immediately think, okay, I need to know what their heritage is in order to connect with them? I mean, you find other things. There's always other things. And I think people feel such an awkwardness. It's an elephant in the room, but not for the person of color. And that was Hari Kondabolu's last meal. Hari has a string of stand-up shows between now and November. Go to harikondabolu.com to get tickets. And if he's not performing near you, you can watch his stand-up special. It's called Warn Your Relatives on Netflix and The Problem with Apu. It's streaming on True TV and on Amazon. Thanks to Asha Gomez. Asha hosts dinners and events at The Third Space in Atlanta, Georgia. Check out her book. It's called My Two Souths. And the recipe for that amazing sounding fried chicken is in that book. And I'm about to head out on a big, fat vacation so I can travel all the way across the world. So I'm taking a little break. We're going to take a month off of the podcast. But if you want to know where I'm going and get some photo updates, make sure and follow along on Instagram. I'm your last meal podcast. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded by Aaron Mason, and theme music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell. I'll see you in a month. This is your last meal. He's told jokes on Conan and Kimmy, Kimmy Jimmel live, <laughs> Kimmy Gibbler live. <laughs> it kind of reminds me about the secret menu at In or Out. In or Out. <laughs> are you in or are you out? She earned a James Beard nomination for her cookbook, My Tooth Sal, My Tooth Sal.
My tooth's out? My tooth's out. A dental. <laughs> Look at Laura. Cookbook. She's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and that, of course, has to do with colonia- colon- colonization. <laughs> do you guys think that maybe I might die after this? Do you think I'm dead? We're going to get your stroke on tape. Yeah. <laughs> colonization. Uh-huh. Theme music by Prom Queen. I think I have senioritis. I think that's why. I think that I'm just out. I'm out of... Yeah, you're ready to go I on vacation. I can't do it anymore, your, guys. Your mind is already in New Zealand. I am like the the um, Kool-Aid guy, and I just ran through the wall. <laughs>